thank you for joining us. I'm going solo again today. I'm going to talk about another Dear Geeky topic. Uh, Ian Sanchez, my crack producer here, is going to help me with this. But um, I'm going to go through a topic that is geeky. And what I want you to do is just, um, I've been talking about this topic for 30 years with the best deer researchers in America. And uh, uh, most notably, John Ozoga from Michigan. John Ozoga worked for the Minnesota, uh, Michigan DNR for his entire career. He retired. He's been in one of our He's been our research editor um, ever since, since 1994. And this is something that I think gets passed up these days. I, I don't know why that um, people don't talk about it, but I'm going to kind of back my way in here, Ian. So I'm going to talk about, I, I have seven questions. And actually these seven questions, what I do on my Mac in my office is I got a little Word document. And anytime I get a question from somebody who emails it to me, or if it's on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, I write those questions down and I keep a little, I guess, a running tally. So here are seven questions that I pulled out of here that are going to relate to today's topic. I'm going to tell you the questions first, and then we're going to talk about um, what could be causing these things. So I'm just going to read you guys the questions first. Number one, why am I seeing so many does without fawns this year? Number two, why do young bucks hold on to their velvet longer than mature bucks? Which isn't often, uh, especially this time of year, people see that coming into September with bucks holding on to the velvet. Uh, Number three, why am I seeing more doe fawns than usual? It seems like I'm seeing more doe fawns this year. This could be any time, you know, any, this could have been three years ago. Somebody asked me this question, but why am I seeing more doe fawns and not enough buck fawns or not as many buck fawns? Number four. Why do bucks disperse longer distances in my area? Or why does it seem that bucks disperse longer distances in my area? Uh, Why am I not seeing as many rubs and scrapes this year? Or the question I've often heard was, why why does it this year seem like rubs and scrapes appeared late, later than usual? That's a common question. Uh, Two more why does the rut seem to be later this year than normal? Now, we do get into the rut predictions with that uh, and some reasons for that. And Charlie explained a lot of this during his career as to some of the factors. But that's when I see a lot. Why is the rut late this year? Or it seemed like the rut didn't even take place. Or it seemed like the rut was you know, non-existent, blah, 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 blah. Getting into that. Last question. Why are there so many small spikes all of a sudden? I hear that a lot from northern hunters, especially in the northern tiers of, say, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, uh, the northern tier. Uh, But also in the south, you hear it a lot of times where it's like, why? number one, why am I seeing so many spikes? And number two, why are the spikes so small? Um, And there are reasons for that, but... So now I'm going to almost reveal the topic. Da, 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 da. I'm going to ask you a question, Ian. All right, let's um, go. What, now, this is going to seem odd, so bear with me, guys. Ian, right. what makes you feel stressed out <laughs> in life in general? Um, Particular situations. Uh, pick and save on a <laughs> Thursday, right when the social security checks get cleared. The grocery store. And yeah, it's crowded. Yeah. Either at the grocery store or when the Packers are down in the fourth. That's always it. Oh, that's stressful. What that about like uh, when you're in a crowd? 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you get stressed out in crowds? Yeah, like groups of people. Oh, yeah. Like big groups, like a state fair. Oh, my gosh. That's a that's a handful what of people. What about like if you're at the park and then um, like a bunch of people come in and sit next to you? Yeah, if I don't know them, yeah, I'm going to be a little weirded out. It's going to cause some stress. He played right into my hand this time. <laughs> so, you know what? What? Um, in, now, I'm not a psychologist, nor have I ever played one or taken. Well, I did take some courses in, in college. Um a psychology term for that is social stress. There you go. For humans in deer, we've written about it a lot in the magazine, in DDH, to the point where I just assume people know what we're talking about when we talk about social stress in deer. But it is a very real thing. John Ozoga was, uh, John Ozoga and Lou Verm, who was John's uh, cohort there in Michigan DNR for 30 years. They were the preeminent researchers on this in white-tailed deer. Um, social stress. So all those questions I just read, you guys. Now, it's not 100%. And that's what I want you to take away from this podcast is that it's not because just of social stress that these things happen. I'm going to get into a whole slew of things for you. But there is an overriding belief among researchers, and do not dismiss researchers because this is peer-reviewed scientific research it's not some guys sitting in lab coats coming up with ideas they actually studied white-tailed deer for decades and um the social stress in a white-tail herd which also uh, uh, is applicable to other mammals is a very real thing and it's a thing that affects all of those things so let's go through i got my notes i have to have notes for this um thank you ian by the way that was that was an ex- excellent example, and I don't like to always, you know, relate what happens with deer to what happens with humans. But there is that helps you understand it. Um, the single overriding factor that can alter when deer breed, how and when they feed, when they disperse, and how they affect with other deer on the landscape would be social stress. Now, when you think about social stress, don't think about it in the terms that we just talked about, like, oh, I'm stressed out, you're making me feel uncomfortable. There is a certain element to that, but I want to get to how that it affects deer. Because once you understand this topic, you're going to better understand how deer react where you hunt. And also, you're going to better know how to predict deer behavior. You just have to trust me on this. It's something Charlie taught me 30 years ago. The more you understand about deer behavior, biology, physiology, and the research surrounding all those topics, the better deer hunter you're going to become. And I know some guys say, I don't care. I just want to kill a big buck. Understand those things. You're really, it, you'd be surprised when that light bulb goes off. You see something in the woods and you might understand how it might happen. Not exactly why, but how. Okay, so um, social stress affects deer herds in many ways. Typically, though, as I kind of just back my way into this, you're not going to mention the, you're not going to notice the effects of social stress even when it's rampant in a deer herd. So what makes it rampant? It's almost solely connected to deer density. So how many deer are on the landscape? And you've heard us probably talk about this all the time, number of deer per square mile. To the point where there are a lot of biologists, 
a lot of research, as in mostly state deer managers, have given up trying to educate the public. I will not. I'll go to my grave trying to educate the public on deer densities. But the thing that frustrates me is in our home state here is we always had those uh, estimates of the deer densities in our area. So it really helped me to understand where they should be. So if you're brand new to this game and you don't know what I'm talking about as far as deer densities, if you look at the optimal deer habitat, it should have no more than an average of 35 deer per square mile. Does that mean every single square mile, 640 acres, is going to have 35 deer? No. Some have more, some have less, depending on how good that habitat is. But that's not a lot of deer when you think about it. Like where we hunt, I'm sure where all you guys hunt, unless you're one of the chosen few that has, you know, tens of thousands of acres at your disposal. If you have 10 or 20 or 40 or 100 or 200 acres, well, let's say you have 100 acres. That's a sixth of a square mile. So what's 35 divided by six? Like six? Just about, not quite. So all things being equal, you should have no more than six deer on that land. Well, it doesn't take much like a doe and two fawns, a doe and two fawns. That's it. That's all you got. So that's how low a deer density should be for optimal deer health. Most places, anybody listening to this podcast is going to say, well, I got a lot more deer than that. I saw 50 deer in the field last night. You have too, You probably have too many deer for the landscape, which is the case across the country. But um, when it comes to social stress, it is all dependent on deer density. That's where you start seeing these things manifest. Um, how do they manifest? They manifest in different ways, and that's what I'm going to talk about for the most part uh, today. Number one, in territorial behavior. I know this is a lot to keep track of. I know you're probably going to get bored and you're going to start yawning, but just try to stay with me here. I'm, it's going to be just a few topics I'm going to stay on. Territorial behavior. Deer, as we know, are territorial creatures, especially within the maternal segment. So does are extremely territorial. And that's why we see you'll have a, uh, you know, it's basically grandmothers and daughters and all the way down the line. And I've used this analogy a million times. The most mature does are going to occupy, occupy the high rent areas, the best habitat. And that's going to be the best fawning cover for the most part, the stuff with really good cover. And on down the line to the point where you get to the yearling does, which are the first dispersers for the female group, they get the, they get the low rent and they get the crappy spots like the spot you hunt out here, Ian, but next to the office. <laughs> I'm going to set my watch that the first deer you're killing this year is going to be a yearling doe that's going to come in by herself into this food plot because she has to live in this very sparsely wooded river corridor next to our office, which is fine, but it helps you understand that as far as the landscape goes, you can, uh, you can actually really predict how good your habitat is based off of age structure of females. So if you have... Um, I don't want to even say a preponderance. If you have a couple yearling does that are making up home there, guess where the, the big mamas are? They coming out to those food plots? Yes, they are, but they're probably, their core area is normally 20 or 30 or 40 acres somewhere else, and it's going to be the better cover. So uh, territorial behavior is number one. And um, when you get that population to a, a high, so let's just say some areas of the country have 100 deer per square mile. When it's that high, the crowding of that deer herd on the landscape doesn't necessarily change the physiology or lead to population crashes, which most people would think. They would think as that population gets higher, 
the deer are going to be, you know, emaciated and they're not going to have enough to eat. That's not the case. The studies that, th- that they showed here is even when deer were supplementally fed, they were given all the food they could eat. When that population hit, uh, just say, 75 to 100 deer per square mile, the effects of social stress kick in, and the effects of that social stress is what's leading to the fracturing. And I don't want to say the de- demise of the deer herd, but it changes things, and it changes what we see out in the woods, which we might not necessarily notice. But the biggest thing is when that population gets to a certain level, the reproductive performance is affected more than anything else. And that is going to be, I think, fourth on my list, but wait till you hear that because that's something that you're never going to be able to guess. Because we try to think about it in our own rational ways, and it doesn't work that way. So territorial behavior, number one uh, thing affect, that affects that is affected by um, social stress. And what leads, what happens with territorial behavior, it becomes more pronounced Does become more territorial um, over fawning areas, which means the lower class deer get the poor fawning areas. Um, And when I talked about leading to um, a reduction in reproduction, so the younger deer, the year and a half old deer, and then the two and a half year old deer are going to obtain poor fawning areas. They're going to have imprinting failure of their fawns. So what happens with a fawn is it imprints on its mother, but this is nature's way of saying there's 100 deer per square mile. This yearling doe is feeling the effects of s- social stress. She might abandon that fawn. She might not come back to check on that fawn enough like she would under a normal situation. That fawn doesn't imprint on that doe, which means, you know, it doesn't take to the mother right away. And then it dies. And um, it leads to abandonment. What they found is the higher the deer density gets... So if you look um, at a normal, let's look at a normal deer population where you have a low deer density, less than 35, a nice um, mix of bucks and does, it's usually 50-50 anyways. You're going to have a a natural loss between 6 and 8% of fawns. That could be through predation, it could be through abandonment, it could be whatever, malnourishment, whatever. 6 to 8% of fawns are going to die. When you get... Uh, a socially stressed herd, the, the I'm going to give you a quiz on this pop quiz. So when we get to a, a socially stressed herd, Ian, let's say 100 deer per square mile. Now, I just told you an average loss rate is 6 to 8% of all fawns. What would you think the loss rate would be for yearling does having their first fawns? On that size property? On a socially stressed property. Uh, like did like out of a hundred, just like a hundred deer per square mile. I'm saying so. The population is at, at is way <laughs> over peak, right? And I, like I'm telling you, like when the population is at a normal level, the loss rate is going to be six to eight percent. But what happens when you get that um, mm. that population really stressed? I want to say that that percentage definitely goes up a few. I'm sure, uh, probably like ten to fifteen percent somewhere. Sixty-five percent. Holy cow! That is a lot higher than I thought. For yearling does, that's just for yearling does. For yearling does, so like at the lower levels across the board, your loss is sixty-eight percent. You get a socially stressed herd. The yearling does are basically either abandoning, abandoning, aborting. 
um, losing 65, you know, two-thirds of their fawns. Yeah. But the older does have increased um, uh their 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 fawning rates has increased. So does it completely balance itself out? No, you're still going to be your your production rate is going to be. So when I, you've got you've heard me talk about um, uh, fawning rates, you know, and I talk about like there's an, a good area might have one point one to one point two fawning rate. So what that means is that over that entire herd, you take all the females who gave birth. They average more than one fawn that they raised to six months. That's well, a fawning rate is to six months. So uh, on a good population, 1.1, 1.2. But then you look in like the southeast, <clears throat> especially those fa- in, in in the northeast, those fawning rates are like 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5. Right, higher predation. And that's what stress. happens. That's what happens at those high when when those densities are high. Right. So your territorial behavior. Basically, those prime age does are pushing those younger does out. The younger does' um, fawning rates are just terrible. The better, um, the mature prime age does is higher. But what this happens with social stress is that your population actually starts decreasing due to nature. This is God's way of saying there's too many deer out here. Something's got, but this is just one point. This is why I find, I know this is geeky, but I find this absolutely fascinating. So that's point one. Literally thins out the herd. Literally thins out the herd. Not to the point where you're going to see it, but the where you might see it in this situation is, okay, so we know that, let's say we know that, yeah, the, the density around here is probably pretty high. Okay. We're not going to, most of you guys watching this and gals aren't going to know what your deer density is. You can probably get a guess, especially if you live in a good state that does these things still. You can probably have a guess. But, and I'm saying, don't take this for for gold, but you might live in an area where you're like, I see a lot of single yearling does and they don't have fawns. Or, in bad cases, two and a half year old does. Mm. So people often will say, well, the rut didn't happen last year. It happened. But, you know, it could have been 70% of those does lost their fawns. Yeah. And that age structure might be skewed. So that's something to keep in mind. So there's no black and white. There's no black and white answer. I can't tell you that's definitely because of social stress. But I also know that it's probably not because, well, the rut didn't happen or we don't have enough bucks around here to service these. Those. That, that's that's so low on the possibility scale that is probably not true okay so we're talking about social stress i'm trying to stay on point here because i know i can get geeky and really go off off the tracks territorial behavior number one number two social stress affects breeding and it not only affects the what i just talked about the success rates of breeding but breeding behavior which i find absolutely fascinating so what social stress can cause again stay with me we're talking about when deer densities get higher than what they should be it literally can cause a hormonal imbalance in young does and that's part of the reason to the point where they have a delayed estrus by several weeks and it can also prevent breeding altogether so when you think about that for a second that goes hand in hand with all this stuff we talk about the rut like well the rut never happened i saw these does breeding in december or, you know, these does didn't even have fawns. That is a direct, can be a direct correlation to social stress. 
which is completely fascinating. Again, God's way of saying, too many deer out here. This doe has a hormonal imbalance now because, you know, some of the things um, physically is telling it is is changing its physiology that that it's not going to now it's not going to enter estrus until two or three weeks later than normal or somebody will say oh the rut happened late this year i don't know why that's because you happen to be hunting in a high density area and you're out there let's say at the end of november or into december or if you're a, a southern hunter in texas or alabama or georgia you know that's pushed into february or march or who knows when in some of the southern states because the, the breeding season is prolonged and it could, because of, it could be because of that. In a lot of cases, it is. Um, don't think for a minute that there aren't areas that are way over-prescribed, but also I know there's pockets of areas that are under-prescribed for deer. So it's something, again, it, you can't set your watch by it, but it's fascinating stuff to know because it's going to help you understand these things. Okay, so um, I talked about that's why you see the crazy ruts this year. It's not the weather. It's more about the herd. If you live in an area with a finely balanced herd, um, you're going to be fine. You know, that's when you see the classic rut. In most most areas of the country, it's going to be right around Halloween into the first week or two of November. I know that is different. If you live in the Northeast, it's later. If you live in the South, it's much later. But you know if you've hunted long enough when the average rut occurs in your area. If you're seeing a drastic change, that's something to think about. Um, and the other thing I talked about before, this is a rabbit hole I could go down, which I find extraordinarily fascinating. In all this extreme doe hunting, let's kill the does, kill the does, kill the does, we've lowered age structures of doe populations, and we did a video on that last week. And some people are saying, oh, you're crazy. The average average doe isn't that. Well, it, it is, but I'm not going to sit there and argue with people. because I remember that short. People were thinking that... <laughs> And, and I don't think they understood in that short the context that we said average age We're across the talking. country. Yeah, and sure, you might have six year old bucks on your property all day, every day, but you know, but some the other average places. isn't. Yeah, there. exactly. Um, when you look at a, a socially stressed herd that has been really over exploited, that means you've killed tons and tons of does off that thing. You're going to see two and a half year old does. This is proven by research. I'm not just making this up. You're going to see two and a half year old does revert to yearling behavior as far as when they breed, how successful they breed, and what type of mother they are, which is really something that that speaks to me because I know I've been a doe-killing fool over the past 30 years. But the one thing that I really insist on today is not to overshoot those prime-age does. And in some areas, a prime-age doe is two and a half. But in most places, a prime-age doe is going to be three, four, five, six years old. Those does I leave alone. If I want meat, I'm killing a yearling or, heaven forbid, a couple of fawns to fill the freezer. Because I want those prime-age does to be doing the breeding because the breeding is going to bring the bucks and the bucks are going to make for better rut hunting and hopefully a, a happier uh, hunting season. So I have to take a break for just a second. It's like you said the F word there, the fawn word. You know, just <laughs> that, I think that is the F word for deer hunters, isn't it? Yeah, the, the fawn. Oh, God. I wish, yeah. I mean, I've thought of many ways to try to change that, that 
Because some people would call them yearlings to try to make it sound better. No, there's well, no way to make it sound better. You're, it's not a yearling. A yearling's yeah. an 18-month-old deer. A fawn is a deer that's six months old. Shoot it, put a smile on your face, and own up to it. <laughs> Be happy about it. I, we're going to get some comments on that one. But hey, that's okay. That's okay. That's what this is about, that's right? That's what a podcast is for. Okay. Deer Talk Now is brought to you by... Traditions, as you probably know, two years ago they came out with the Nitro Fire in collaboration with Federal Premium and Hodgeton. The fire stick, they shoot through those guns. This has really changed muzzleloading. It's made it more safer, more accurate. Check them out today at traditionsfirearms.com. Okay, so we talked about territorial behavior. We talked about social stress, uh, how it affects breeding. Um, I, one other thing I have to put in there is, according to this research, and this wasn't just one study, this was for decades, that stress has been known to increase progesterone and delay or completely interfere with reproductive efficiency. That's something that they found through this. Progesterone, uh, just yeah. for the audience, what is that? Uh, it's a female hormone in, in white-tailed deer. Okay. Does it influence like pr- uh, like reproduction? Right. Health? Yes. It okay. influences when they go into estrus okay. and when they breed. Got it. And that is altered chemically when social stress is at all-time high. Now, does it affect every single doe? No, it doesn't. But it affects enough deer that it will make a difference to where you're going to see those delays. And they actually studied this in the lab. And they what they did was they did... What John did... Boy, this stuff... Like I said, I could go on all day about this. But what they did is it not only fetal lengths and weights, they measured... There's a name for it, and I can't remember what it is. They measured the eyelids... Because it's something about the eyelid of the fetus can tell you about the consumption date. Hmm. And that's how they basically pinpointed when exactly those does were breeding, how efficient they were, excuse me, and how successful um, the uh, uh, recruitment rate was. So it, it wasn't just going out there and observing lines like, oh, you know, we've got this ear take. It wasn't like that at all. It was, like I said, peer-reviewed in the... Uh, Journal of Wildlife Management is where these studies were published. Okay, the third thing, social stress, stress affects feeding, but not in the way that you thought. So when, the, when you looked at the research, it was these deer were given as much food as they wanted. It was a square mile enclosure in Cousineau in the upper Michigan, upper, upper Michigan. It was where most of these studies were taking place. For all intents and purposes, wild deer, but yes, they were living in a 640-acre square fence. Um, when you look at social stress and how it affects feeding, it affects how deer overbrowse the landscape. So you're saying, well, what you're telling me they had unlimited food, but when you overbrowse the landscape and you look at, they're not all going to congregate in that same spot. So you're going to have, and that's what we have today. We have pockets. You have a guy who's doing QDM, who's got food plots. And in some states where it's legal, you have supplemental feed and you've got, you've got good, stuff there but on the outskirts all that stuff's been overbrowsed. so if you have a population that is way way beyond maxed out the social stress really comes into play because it not only affects um the timing of food availability it affects the cover which we know is the number one thing deer need in winter they need winter and cover and more importantly in spring and summer they need fawning cover so that goes to the whole high rent, low rent uh, scenario that I talk about. An over-browsed landscape puts more stress 
on the deer herd because there's fewer nice apartments for these deer to live in. You know what I'm talking about? It's fewer of those good prime prime habitat places for those does to have their fawns and rear their fawns. Um, the other thing with feeding, it leads to um, social stress on the, f- the whole feeding behavior. It leads to a prolifer- proliferation of invasive, non-preferred understory, which we see in just about every forest in the country. I talk about that till I'm blue in the face. Do you know what you have as the understory in your forest? If you don't, look at it. Is it vitally important that you have to know that? No. It's something that I like to know because if I have all these invasive species, I'm going to, on my property, am I going to cure world hunger for their deer hunger for that? No, but I'm going to do my part to make that a Leopold landscape to make it the way it should be. It might be a drop of, of water in the ocean, but that's why people do it. Plus, it's fun. Um, which, uh, so the overbrowsing leads to degradation of fawning cover, vicious cycle. It leads to gaps in nutrition. I talked about that at various times of the year, another vicious cycle. But the answer is not providing more feed. The answer is keeping the deer population in check and making sure that you, I mean, we do that. I mean, harvest um, equally across ages when you can and sexes, bucks and does. We do that as well. But don't overshoot one or the other. A lot of guys think, I have all these doe tags, I'm going to fill them all. Don't do that. Have a plan. Every little bit's going to help you and your, if that's if that's your sole purpose is to increase your hunting prospects. Um, let me see how I'm doing here. I'm doing fine. Breakdown of feeding structure is especially evident in southern deer herds. Um, it's seen in the south when there's a shortage of bucks. And how many times do you see this? And I know the south has done a really good job of reversing some of these trends. But some states had, yeah, I can shoot a buck a day, you know, and guys tried to. So you had an over-exploitation, you had an exploitation of bucks, which led to, um, and a lot of people were refusing to shoot does. So you have does recycling and are late for breeding. So in some of these situations, I mean, it's not just reduced to the south, but in some of these cases, what you're going to have, when I talk about a breakdown in feeding structure, you're going to have maybe limited resources. You're going to have lower than probably optimal buck numbers, higher than optimal doe numbers. And those does, when I say they recycle, they hit estrus, they don't get bread, so they recycle again. When they recycle again, they get bread later. When they get bread later, you have fawns that are tiny going into spring and summer. Um, Their survivability might be lessened because of that. And to our next point, when it comes to bucks, which everybody wants and talks about, it's going to affect them. And what this is going to lead to is social stress and how it affects bucks. It it not only messes with them from a standpoint of if they're late to the game, you see short spikes, you see small antlers. You, you Most people, and I don't know why it is, but it just bothers me, they immediately go right to genetics. Oh, he's got bad genetics. He's short spikes. He's only a six point. He should be bigger than that. He's late to the game. He's trying to catch up, but... It's not just that. It also leads to male hormone imbalances. So what you have when you have a socially stressed herd, you have bucks that delay their antler uh, velvet shedding. You have um, overall antler growth that's not as good as you would expect, especially when people are today aging deer by two and a half, three and a half years old. 
despite good nutrition, despite people doing their best intentions and planning food plots and uh, pr- providing all this, you know, habitat work. The, it all goes hand in hand. Um, the short spike phenomenon in yearlings, I've noticed, is most prevalent in northern deer herds, far northern deer herds, and and some southern deer herds. Um, that is a that can be a direct correlation from social stress. Uh, scent marking behavior during the early pre-rut, so like um, rubs and scrapes and you know licking branches and whatnot, you think, oh, the rut's not happening. Well, did you ever think of you have a lot of deer on your landscape? These bucks, um, their whole physiological makeup could be delayed because of that, and it's true. It does happen. Um, going back to the short spikes. In areas with high deer densities, when provided ample nutrition, nearly 25% of the yearling bucks can have short spikes or small racks. But it can also be, it can also, this phenomenon can also be caused due to improper harvest methods. Um, so when I talk about that, it's like back in the days when everybody shot everything. Like any buck was a good buck. You saw a buck, you killed it. That definitely led to short spike syndrome in a lot of places because you basically had everybody going after bucks, not killing the does. The density went up. Social stress levels were high. And those bucks, as a result, their growth was retarded. I mean, it was it was pushed back. Um, what what else on bucks? I got two more p- topics for you here, Ian, and I know you're probably I'm probably losing you, but um, this is fascinating. And what's kind of interesting is that there isn't. It seems like there is a one, you know, like solution fix all kind of thing for this, but there isn't. There isn't. There, it's 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 like there is, but it's faceted with a million other little subtopics that you have to pay attention. That to. That is the thing that I want. What he just said is what I want everybody to remember, because you think that I, as especially as guys. We want to fix it, right? We want to. We want to have. <laughs> stop crying. I'm, I'll do it. Whatever, whatever you want, you know. And that's what we think about here: is we want to fix it, and we can't. We have to understand why this might be happening, and then what we have to understand is that what Ian just said there: there probably is a million different things that are connected to this. It's not just the does. It's not just. It's not bucks. just the does. It's not just passing up small bucks. It's not right. just putting out food plots and supplemental feed. That, right. You can do all of it, and it doesn't matter if you have a high density. This episode is also brought to you by Full Range Mounting Systems. These mounting systems are a great way to manage all of your mounts in a stylish and organized manner. We are using their pedestal mount here on the podcast set for two shoulder mounts, and it looks just awesome. Be sure to check out their mounting systems at fullrangesystems.com, and for 15% off your order... Use code DTN. The one thing on that, uh, what it does to bucks, is we talked about short spike bucks, but a shortage of prime age bucks can be disruptive during the rut when the presence of older prime age bucks helps ensure harmony and social order. So what happens there is if you're in in an area that is a preponderance of we're going to kill any buck that walks, and you don't have prime age bucks. The prime age bucks are the social order keepers during the rut, and they help suppress some of the other bucks. It's just, uh, and to use another human analogy, 
it's going to be the alpha is going to suppress those younger ones until it's their time. Now, is it like I said, it's not 100%. But when you see these big gaps, you can understand why that might be happening. Um, two more topics. Uh, why does social stress, why do the variables happen? Well, so why does it happen? Um, it, it, this sounds simple, but it's nature's way of regulating the deer herd even when nutrition is not a factor. So, and I, I, I will always give all glory to God, but this is God's plan. So basically, if that population keeps getting higher and higher and higher, it's not pretty. It's certainly not pretty. But there's going to be a law of diminishing returns. And that law of diminishing returns happens when it hits a certain peak. And then it's like, okay, stuff's going to start happening, you know. And that's the way nature is. You know, it's like you watch nature's metal. It is metal. It's going to be like these deer are going to start dying. Some, some of these deer aren't going to breed. Some of them are going to be stunted. Some are going to be smaller. That's the way it's going to work. And that's how things basically self-regulate each, itself. Um, it, it, but the biggest thing that I find fascinating, and I know this is a fancy um, research term, it's called behavioral plasticity in whitetails. So basically, those, reason, uh, those various things happen for a reason. It's plastic. It's, it's movable. It's malleable. It's not, it's not cut and dried like, well, the deer herd is stressed, so I'm going to give them more food. Or these, these fawns are not surviving, you know, basically past three months, so I'm going to make better cover. Or these deer aren't surviving the winter, so I'm going to provide better winter cover. It's not that easy. The, the deer are going to basically ebb and flow to fit that behavior. Now, there's other things that, that uh, those circumstances, I should say. There's other things that come into play that we haven't even talked about. We got chronic wasting disease. We have EHD, which is even worse because it's taking out entire age classes of deer. Um, we have overhunting. We've got, you know, all sorts of things that play into it that affect the population levels. Um, I know I've talked basically nonstop here for almost 40 minutes, Ian, but I've got one last topic. Um, this one is another, this could be a topic for an entire show, but it's um, a phenomenon that we've learned about social stress in deer is that it will, it can lead to social isolation in whitetails, which isn't always a negative. So when we think about isolation, we think like, Ian, I'm putting you out in the park. You're going to be there by yourself. You might get a sack of lunch and nobody's going to talk to you. Um, <laughs> that's not how it works in deer. It, that's not what I'm talking to. Um, hang on. I got to take a sip. Thank you. Social, a social isolation in deer, which they've studied, and this is what they found. Um, it can lead to improved reproduction for certain age classes. So for an example, we're, I'm going to be talking about does here again. A two-and-a-half-year-old doe that is socially isolated. So what does that mean? Remember when I said they can revert to yearling behavior? So when we look at yearling does, we talk about the concentric circles and how does live on the landscape. The yearling does, first-time mothers, are normally socially isolated because they get the low rent. They get the spot here by the office where they can live in the three acres and pretty much not get bothered. But it's kind of crappy habitat because there's kids running through there and guys walking their dogs and... Yeah, they can hide for a little bit, but it's kind of stressful for them. They're not across the river by the cornfields because that's where the mature does are, but it's relatively close. Um, the two-and-a-half-year-old does, 
So how can being a social, socially isolated be good for a two-and-a-half-year-old that's reverting to those yearling be- behaviors? Um, they often exhibit earlier breeding dates, which is a good thing for a doe because, I mean, not extraordinarily early. We're talking days or maybe a week. But the sooner she gives birth to her fawn, the, the normally it's going to have better odds of surviving rather than being a late-born fawn and being underweight and stuff like that. Um, also, being a social isolate um, often leads to larger litters. So think about that. The, the um, uh, recruitment rate actually might be higher. So that first-time, fawn, that first-time mother a yearling or a first-time mother that's a two-year-old, or she could be a second-time mother, um, she's going to probably have twins. So they found that. They found that the um, the litter sizes are normally larger for these isolates. And also, this is the thing where, um, another thing about how nature is just bizarre, they skew to a preponderance of female offspring. So you have social stress. You would think now there. And the thing is, again, it's not cut and dried. In some cases of social stress due to um, over harvesting that went back to the 50s and 60s. You know why we had so many bucks? Everybody shot the first buck they saw. Okay, so in that case, the does were more skewed to throw more bucks because there were fewer bucks on the landscape. Nobody shot does, and that that was a thing. In this case, the social stress is due to a high deer population in general, and she's throwing more females. Why is that? That is a that's a mystery to me. That's a mystery to me. Was why um, those uh, earlier breeding females who are younger would be giving birth to more females than males that I that one doesn't make sense to me I can't I can't figure it out do you think Auburn has an answer I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Ditchcuff because he has studied this stuff yeah he has studied this not as extensively as John has John basically spent most of his 30 plus almost 35 years as a wildlife researcher studying this stuff yeah and as John would always say because John is the consummate uh, wildlife researcher more research is needed. That's what right. John, John would always say. Right. And he would never get he would never be as definitive as I am on these <laughs> things. He would always say, nope, more research. He's very and that's a mark of a, a true pro. Because John was like, I'm not I'm just throwing this information out. I'm a scientist. Here's the information. But he was good enough to dumb it down so someone like I could understand it. Right. And in, any deer and deer hunting reader who's read his stuff, I always say you've got to basically that's why I can't throw those magazines away. I got to read this thing three or four times to understand what he's talking about. Yeah. And on something like this, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. As far as like, okay, I understand how that can happen. I don't understand why. Yeah. But I can understand how that can happen. Plus your property's different. So the reader is going to be trying to apply that to their own right. situation. And that's that's the point. You're yeah. going to try to, and you might say, well, that doesn't apply to me. It might not. Yeah. It might not. You might not have an overprescribed herd. <laughs> okay. Last two points. Um, well, I did talk about that. In other cases, exploitation has led to an increase in male offspring, and we've seen that in, again, a lot of northern areas. Um, uh, and the final point there is social isolation can lead to social stress that um, increases the pressure for deer to disperse. 
that makes sense. I put 15 people in your house when you're 18, and you're like, uh, yeah, screw this. I'm out of here. You know, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. I, I can't live like this anymore, Mom. I got to get out. Ma! You know, <laughs> Ma, take care of it. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you leave, but then you not only leave. Uh, I'm sorry, that was a family guy reference for you guys home, man. Um, <laughs> higher dispersal rates and farther dispersal distances. So basically, population's high. I got to get out. I got to get out. I got to find my own place. I'm not just moving to, you know, Appleton. I'm going to Tulsa because I can't take this place anymore. Kind of similar to deer in the fact that when that population gets high, the dispersal rate's going to be higher and faster and farther. Not 100%, but there is a definite correlation between um, faster and farther dispersal distances for bucks and does. Doe is obviously not as marked because they are more social creatures with other females, um, but all due to increased social stress. So I think I've talked long enough. Do you have any follow-up questions that I need to address? I think you covered it all. I'm looking at it here. You you knocked out pretty much every topic. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, though. I mean, and each, I could to- make each your, topic could be a podcast. And, and I could make your self. brain even to more mush. And I, <laughs> if anybody's still listening, thank you for, for bearing with us here. Thank you. Um, for, for making it all the way through. Okay. So if you have nothing else, I'm going to make sure you give me the nod there. No more no more questions from you. Good to go. Appreciate it. I want to thank you all for joining us for the Deer Talk Now podcast. Again, you can um, listen to all of these wherever podcasts are dropped, or you can watch them on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere else you find deer and deer hunting. Again, I am Daniel Schmidt. Until next time, thank you for joining us. We drop these podcasts, Deer Talk Now podcasts, every Thursday. So we'll catch you next week for a brand new episode. Deer Talk Now is brought to you by 10 Point Crossbow Technologies. Whether I'm in a tree stand, ground blind, or spot and stalk hunting, I know the Nitro 505 is up to any challenge. Check one out at a dealer near you or log on to 10pointcrossbows.com for more information.